Welcome to the Eastern Approaches podcast, hosted by Alex Thompson. I'm delighted to be joined once again by Gevorg Virats, and it's suddenly time for us to review the Armenia-Azerbaijan war. Last time we spoke, Gevorg, the war was just beginning to rage in the territory of Artsakh, known to the outside world as Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an enclave of ethnic Armenians within the Republic of Azerbaijan, at least in international borders terms. And we spoke at a time when Armenia was quite expectant of being able to defend the whole territory of Artsakh and perhaps hold on to the bulk of the land in Azerbaijan proper, which had been depopulated, but which had until 1994 been populated by Turkic Azerbaijani people. However, all of a sudden, one day in October 2020, we woke up to the news that Azerbaijan's troops had penetrated through that buffer zone and got into mountainous Karabakh itself, or Artsakh, and had actually captured its second city, no less, Shusha, or known to the Armenians as Shushi, a very iconic hilltop city of huge historic value to both sides. What on earth went wrong, Givorg? Because the last time we spoke, one of the points you made is that the Armenian army wasn't actually involved in the fighting as yet, as of that stage, nor were even all the regulars of the Nagorno-Karabakh self-defense force. It was basically first and second year conscripts that were doing the bulk of the fighting. So it looked like the Nagorno-Karabakh side was just warming up to a full battle. And before you knew it, Shushi had been taken. Please explain. Well, uh, hello, Alex. Uh, thanks for this question. Uh, I would like to find someone in the whole of this region who, uh, who would have been able to explain this to me. But uh, I am uh, still to find that person. I think uh, the knowledge of what happened pertains to uh, perhaps just the very few that are uh, involved uh, directly in, uh, in perpetrating whatever they have perpetrated on, on both sides, the, the Armenian and the Azeri. What was going on from as far as I can see it, and I was able to uh, over, overview the situation uh, from all the open and not that very open sources that are available. All I was able to, uh, to understand is that the battles have been going on. The situation wasn't nearly as drastic as the Armenian side is trying to present now. But all of a sudden, somehow, the Azeri troops found themselves in, in the city of Shushi. One of the questions that I had was, well, okay, how did they get there? And uh, interestingly, uh, the road to uh, Shushi, uh, the one uh, that is the only road from the southern part of Artsakh to Shushi, that is controlled till today, is controlled by the Armenian army or the Armenians of, of Artsakh, the, the regional army. The NKR Defense Force, I think we call them usually. Well, that's what they're called officially. Uh, you're, you're, you're very correct there. But um, just to make it clear to the listeners who they are, the Armenians or the Azeris. Uh, but, uh, We're talking yes. about ethnic. Ethnic Armenians with guns were in control of the approaches uphill towards that city on the hilltop. 
Uh, the only the only road was controlled by the Armenians. However, apart from that road, uh, there is a mountainous. Uh, well, it, it is a valley, but it's not it's not a valley as in you would have in Wales, for instance, where you have a consistent valley. It's, it's sort of a valley with uh, hills and mountains on your your way. But there is this 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 pathway, which was completely forested, and uh, so a kind of mountain trail or pass, something like that. It is extremely unlikely that any sort of a vehicle would ever be able to get to Shushi, to the city that has been taken by the Azeris, through that pathway. However, it turned out that uh, even before the attack, before the Azeri attack, all the trees on that way, on that uh, trail, were cut down. Uh, some of the parts of the, of the pathway that were more difficult for uh, passing over uh, were, uh, to me, it looks like the Azeris have been invited there and uh, given a pretty warm welcome. Now, uh, within hours after uh, some of my first-hand sources told me from, from, that, uh, from that territory that the Azeri attack has been repelled, uh, the news come in town has been taken by the Azeris. So what happened there, uh, I'm not uh, in a position to say. Now, what I am able to say definitely is that Armenia as a country didn't use the whole of its potential in defending that territory. By, by no means was the whole of Armenian army involved uh, in, in, in fighting. Uh, also, the airspace in Artsakh uh, was very uh, scarcely controlled by the Armenians. Another question that uh, many uh, military specialists ask is, uh, why is it that on some days the air of Artsakh was completely free from all the drones and all the uh, airplanes of the Azeri army, but on other days you would have them uh, flying in in hundreds. What's what's that situation talking about? Like how, how so? Now, of course, there's uh, there's lots of blames going around. People say that you know the Armenians have betrayed Artsakh. And the others say that uh, the Russians uh, manipulated the situation in order to get their troops stationed in, in the region. However, I personally believe that uh, this, this whole situation is a more complicated story than just this, this military, uh, military uh, skirmish or even if we want to call it a full-scale war, which it was a full-scale war, uh, I think there is more to the whole story than, than just the military part.
And that is what we intend to unfold little by little in the time available. Just before we move off the military plane itself, no pun intended on the word plane, but let's talk about the airspace. It has become known to people reading the news in English about this Armenia-Azerbaijan war that Azerbaijan had acquired a lot of jets from both Turkey and Israel. And as you're describing on some days, they were buzzing Artsakh airspace. I know it's not a breach of international law to the Azeri side, but we're talking about the uh, de facto situation. Uh, in some day, on some days, they were making incursions with impunity over Nagorno-Karabakh. On other days, they weren't at all. There's also claims, of course, that these uh, jets were in some ways being controlled directly by Turkey, not even being given to pilots of the Turks' Azerbaijan allies under whose airspace and air force they were officially flying. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Is, is there any firm indication that the Turks themselves were involved in their own air defence or air assets and not just helping the Azerbaijanis? Well, uh, there are three points that I would like to make uh, answering this, your question. Well, first of all, in terms of breach of the airspace and the international law, it isn't just the airspace of Artsakh that was intruded into, but also that of Armenia. That's, uh, that's one part of the story. Because as we all know, and our listeners might be uh, interested to know as well, this war ended when uh, the Russian military helicopter was downed in Armenia. And uh, the Azeri uh, officials immediately took the blame for it, but uh, there are allegations, and uh, pretty serious ones, that uh, it was actually uh, hit by the Turks in order to uh, make sure that this war continues. But uh, in fact, this was the last day of the war. So uh, rather than prolonging the war, it rather urgently foreshortened it. It, is, it has overtones here of the downing of the Sukhoi in Idlib in Syria by the Turks, uh, which they held their hands up to because there they didn't have any local Turkic allies to blame it on. Uh, but in this case, you're saying Azerbaijan held their hands up and said, sorry, it was us, not our big brother Turkey. But what happened in the next few hours and what were the, the ground movements? Somewhat surprising to me, you'll have to outline it for the listeners, but Armenia proper has a Russian base on the Turkish border in Gumri in the northwest of Armenia, right the other end of the country. It's a small country, I know, but right the other end from Artsakh at the eastern end of the Armenian ethnic territory. And all of a sudden, the Russians come in by ground a few hours after the downing of the helicopter. What happened in the interim? Uh, Alex, before I uh, answer this, I would like to continue to my uh, second and third points regarding the airspace, because this will answer, uh, answer a part of what, what you're asking now. The, uh, the first thing is that, yes, uh, uh, Turkey and, Armenia and Azerbaijan were uh, dominating the Armenian airspace and their ways and uh, military bases in Erzurum and Igdir in Turkey. Uh, they, uh, th these were the, uh, the centers from where the control over over the airspace uh, in, in the South, uh, South Caucasus was uh, monitored and, and, and exercised. But the, the second part of this is that uh, the Armenian side, the Armenians and the Russians, they uh, they are well since Armenia is part of the Russian-led uh, 
military alliance, uh, the Armenians and the Russians have common air defense system. So it isn't just uh, up to the Armenian side to uh, uh, act uh, in in its uh, in its airspace, but uh, decisions are made together with the Russians uh, on uh, every occasion when when, uh, when 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 the action is needed. It's the air defense equivalent of NORAD in North America. The Collective Security Treaty Organization (CSTO) has the same thing, doesn't it? So effectively, Armenian and Russian air force generals are conferring on what to, what steps to take. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, I, it's an agreement between Armenia and Russia in particular, even though it is within the frameworks of the CSTO. It's still it's still uh, Armenia. It's bilateral between Armenia and Russia, and that's uh, how 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 it is different to the uh, NATO uh, uh, system, where you would have every member of NATO have a say in what's happening in North America and Europe. In, uh, in in this particular instance, and it, it's it's just a two party undertaking. But uh, what's important here is that uh, everything that has been happening in Artsakh in terms of uh, protecting airspace was also uh, influenced by the decisions that that the Armenian side has made with uh, together with the Russians. Interestingly, on, on on some days they were able to effectively feel the air off and on other days uh, something went wrong and they weren't able to do that anymore. So that's another another question that needs to be answered. But uh, the third point that I was making is that uh, because most of the drones that Azerbaijan has been using against Artsakh are Israeli drones, they were purchased in Israel and some of them were assembled in Azerbaijan by the Israeli. Or possibly even crewed and demonstrated by Israeli contractors on the ground in Azerbaijan is the accusation. Because this is a, an underbelly of, of how drones are sold by Israel and other such countries these days is that um, in a hot war situation, the trainers will say, look, we'll shoot down an enemy plane live for you to demonstrate it. Well, that's happened before. And there was a huge scandal in Israel because that was revealed and the uh, the Armenians were able to actually prove that this is what, what has been happening in, in 2016. But uh, now the allegations are that they were, uh, they were uh, masterminded and ruled from Israel itself. Or they didn't even need to have uh, anyone present on the territory of Azerbaijan in order to uh, uh, lead the situation with uh, uh, drones. One could be sitting in Israel and playing this video game, you know, killing people and destroying buildings. And uh, who's there to who's there to catch them and to say, well, you have been doing this now. You naughty boy, behave better. So uh, the information that we have at the moment is that uh, uh, at least uh, Israel and Turkey, but uh, also other countries such as Hungary, such as Ukraine, such as others, uh, these countries, have been heavily involved in, in what has been going on in terms of the airspace and air protection. Now, getting back to your question about the Russians and how, how did the Russians appear in Artsakh, I'll, I'll start answering this from the uh, end, kind of, because uh, the agreement that was eventually put in place by the Armenians, the Azeris, and the Russians, the agreement that, agreement that ended the war, 
it uh, states that the Russians are uh, allowed to have a military peacekeeping personnel in Artsakh uh, amounting to 2,000 people. Anyone who uh, will go to Artsakh today uh, will be able to witness uh, that there are many, many more people than, than just, just the 2,000, many more Russians. Uh, so uh, the Russians were were in Armenia and they were flying into Armenia nonstop, like during the whole period of the war. The uh, Armenian border with the Artsakh territory was accumulating all the Russian troops, starting from October the 11th uh, and all the way till November when the war uh, was uh, stopped. So uh, the plan to have the Russians involved was not something that was uh, made spontaneously. Uh, the Russians have premeditated uh, their involvement. And this is another uh, reason why many are led to believe that this whole situation is not as clear as the governments today say that it is. Let's then go on and talk about President Putin's personal involvement, because in general terms, the two heads of state, it, the international law states uh, involved directly, are Nikol Pashinyan in Armenia, and uh, of course he's not head of state, but head of government, prime minister, and uh, Ilham Aliyev in Azerbaijan, the president, and it's a presidential system there, so he's the uh, as much the boss as the US president is in the US. Now, Aliyev is the son of a dynastic founder, and in some ways is said to be on his way out because of growing discontent, at least until the great PR boost of suddenly being able to send the refugees home who've spent 20-odd years in, in refugee camps back to the, the area that Armenia had taken as a buffer zone. But Aliyev is a, is a jaded older politician representing an oil and Soviet dynasty. Pashinyan is often, for short, described as a, as a Sorosite or a, a pro-EU man uh, particularly those who watch Kevork Almasian's Syriana analysis. Of course, he's an ethnic Armenian in Syria. Uh, he would take that line very strongly. So it's a bit of a caricature, but you've got the Soviet strongman and the Sorosite heading up the two governments and militaries involved. Putin, of course, is the is the uh, the wily wolf in the picture, and he has, in interviews since the November ceasefire spoken about his attempts during the summer to knock heads together because Russia does have complicated interests with both sides, with the peoples, with the economies and with the, the militaries, particularly with Armenia, and doesn't want to be encircled and has other peacekeeping roles in the South Caucasus in neighbouring Georgia as well. So a complicated picture. And Putin appeared something like an elder statesman, or probably that was the image he was trying to project when he said to interviewers, look, we nearly had uh, an agreement, something akin to the Palestinian rights to return, uh, the way that that's usually sold, uh, in summer. But Mr. Pashinyan said, sorry, this is an existential threat to the Armenian nation, one of the points of the agreement. But Putin's point was, look, they would have got the de facto outcome of this war and kept the historic flagship town of Shushi if they had gone with the Russian agreement. It's almost like there was something pre-cooked from the Russian side about this outcome, uh, the kind of maximum that Armenia could hope for while under the Russian security blanket. Would that be fair? Uh, more or less. Uh, just recently, uh, a, a discussion between Armenia's previous president and, and the president of Belarus was, was revealed, a recording of that discussion, where 
the president of Belarus asks the Armenian president to release uh, the uh, the seven uh, regions that were occupied by the Armenians uh, to protect uh, the Armenian population of Artsakh. This, this buffer zone around Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah, the buffer zone, exactly. That, you know, Lukashenko asks Serge Sarkisian, says, uh, you know, do you release them? Your 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 resistance to the idea of releasing these uh, territories is rather weak, as a, as a point. To which Ser Sarkisian says, "Well, we had people who died uh, liberating this territory, and I couldn't do that." And the answer of uh, Lukashenko is this. Well, look, uh, Aliyev is going to pay you. He's pledged you one, uh, five billion dollars as a as a first installment. Uh, why 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 don't you uh, go on with that? And then there is another answer that the Armenian president gives. So the Armenian president said, "Well, I'll give Aliyev seven six million six billion dollars and let him just uh, refuse." These territories. So there has been going. Uh, there's been this bargaining going on for uh, for a long time. Now, from the international law standpoint, uh, Armenia couldn't lay a legitimate claim to those seven territories, the buffer zone, because they were part of Azerbaijan. The whole world recognized them, recognizes them as as a, as a part of Azerbaijan. And even of course, Armenia, because the the ethnic Azeris were only leaving those under shelling as recently as 1994, so they had to return in the end to those territories. Uh, it's uh, the question of uh, their return is is another question. It's more of a humanitarian question, but I'm talking about the uh, legitimate uh, ownership of those territories. Those territories uh, legally, according to uh, all international norms, were part of Azerbaijan and Armenia's uh, holding up to that territory hasn't been legal. Now that Armenia has been doing it, and then it, it wasn't officially Armenia, it was the Armenians of Artsakh, the uh, Ankara, NKR Defense Force that were doing that. They were doing it in order to protect themselves Fair enough, that was a valid point up until uh, the point when uh, these uh, territories were no longer a legitimate way of protecting uh, the population of, uh, of Artsakh, because they were initially intended uh, at, uh, at a use during conventional war, during a war when you have troops marching down Know, sit, sitting in their trenches and marching towards your your territory from uh, on the ground. The, the classic post-Soviet situation where you've got uh, an army consisting largely of colonels who know how to use tanks and march infantry, but have very little air defense and certainly not much in the way of jets and missiles at their disposal, let alone drones. But in the 2020s, it's a very different situation. Yes, the whole situation has changed and... Uh, uh, Pashinyan also uh, declared in Armenia, he said that, well, I have addressed every single political entity in the country and said that, you know, we are requested to release these territories. And uh, everyone told him that, no, we're going to go to war to try to protect them. But uh, the way the Armenians protected these territories is, is uh, dubious, to say the least.
Now, interestingly, in July, there were also skirmishes in the north of Armenia, uh, in the north of Armenia proper. And uh, there, the military situation was uh, completely different. Uh, the Azeri drones uh, didn't, uh, didn't help them much. Whenever the Armenian army was involved in a way that it should be involved, uh, the, the balance between the two isn't uh, what we got here in, in, in Artsakh at the moment. Now, going, uh, going back to what you said about uh, the Russian pre-cooking of the whole situation, well, it is obvious that the Russians have been able to extend their influence through the outcome of this war. And whenever we see something like that happening, then, well, it is uh, more than legitimate to say, well, haven't you been preparing yourselves for this? Or haven't you tried uh, uh, achieving something that you could uh, then use for your benefit? And of course they did. Of course they did. It's obvious. On the other hand, did the Armenian interests and the Russian interests coincide here? And then that is also uh, that is also true. Of course, they did coincide because what happened in practice is that uh, the autonomous region of Nagorno-Karabakh, the territory that the Armenians call Arta, that territory has a legitimate claim to independence because the situation of these people and uh, their uh, existential. Uh, rights, uh, they, they are being impended by the Azeri state. They have lived through, through persecution from the uh, Azerbaijani government. So this is the same uh, inalienable right to self-assertion and self-determination and ultimately independence and recognition that has been used by the West for decades with regards to Kosovo and East Timor. That certainly applies to the uh, ethnic Armenian people of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, that they should become a state. Armenian people of Nagorno-Karabakh have a far more legitimate claim to independence than, uh, than does Kosovo. Kosovo has never been a political entity in its whole history. It has never been an autonomous region or anything like that. It was just a part of Serbia populated by the Albanian people. And of course, they used the, uh, this remedial solution because they were the Albanians of Kosovo were were experiencing persecution from the Serbian government. That's that's their claim. But in in, in the situation of the Armenians of Artsakh, the Armenians of Artsakh not only were uh, experiencing all the persecution and, and and so forth, but they were also a legitimate government of a territory that was recognized as a sovereign institution under the Soviet law. They were an autonomous uh, autonomous uh, region uh, under the Soviet constitution. And autonomy is, of course, a, 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 a form of a local uh, quasi-statehood. It's, it's not just, you know, just a random territory where you'd come and say, okay, now I want my independence here. Now, the Armenians have been constituting the majority in, in that territory, but they were also able to... Uh, established some sort of, of, of a government that was recognized internationally. So their, their declaration of independence is uh, far more uh, legitimate in, in terms of the uh, international law than is uh, the situation in, in, in Kosovo. Now, uh, the fact that it hasn't been recognized is another 
is another story because every conflict uh, in the territory of the Soviet Union where Russia has been involved and wherever it was the Russian interest to recognize the territories, the Russians have recognized them, like Abkhazia and South Ossetia and, and Crimea. Crimea, no, they, in Crimea, they didn't only recognize the referendum, but they also annexed the whole region and uh, brought it into Russia. And of course, there's Transnistria or Pridnistrovia, the eastern strip of Moldova, populated by ethnic Russians who want no part of Moldovan statehood. Uh, Transnistria isn't populated uh, just by the Russians. It's populated also by Ukrainians and Moldovans, interestingly. It's it's, it's mixed population. And the conflict there is, is not as much ethnic as it is purely political. It's... Um, are far more difficult to say in in in, the, in, in that particular instance that 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 there there was any persecution of any sort. I mean, no one's ever persecuted the Russians in Moldova. This is uh, this is completely different in terms of its genesis. This conflict, that situation, and the situation in east of Ukraine is, uh, I believe, still to develop. It has uh, it has a lot of uh, negative potential, especially with the election of Mrs. Sandro uh, as, as as president of Moldova right now, and uh, with the involvement of the Turks in Ukraine, because the Turkish involvement in uh, building the Ukrainian army, the rebuilding the Ukrainian army, uh, is growing day to day, and uh, we might witness. Uh, an escalation in the east of Ukraine uh, further down the line. Just amplify that a bit for us, Gevorg, because everyone who's been watching the region has said for a long time that Russia, well, those who are anti-Russian would talk, or sceptical would talk about the dead hand of Russia, but a more neutral term would be Russia was feeding clients in the region, of which Armenia was accused of being one, Belarus being another. However, Turkey, possibly with neo-Ottoman aspirations, as it's now often labelled, or you can just call it Erdogan's personal, personal designs, Turkey also seems to be reviving or forging new client relationships with regional powers. Ukraine, you've mentioned, there's definitely an uh, energy and air force relationship there. You mentioned the distantly possibly related people of Hungary, and certainly the Hungarian state has a, 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 a nod to the east, a desire to be uh, in harmony with uh, more of the Asian states and uh, economic prosperity uh, and military links with them, as well as with uh, the EU. Uh, you've mentioned Israel, obviously. What is Turkey doing? Is, is it, if first and foremost, an answer to the air superiority in the region, which is so decisive? Because Russia and Greece together, I think incontrovertibly, would be able to hem in even the powerful Turkish air force in a conventional air war. Uh, we see the United Arab Emirates drawn in on the on the Greek and Russian side here as well now. Uh, or is there more going on than that? It's a good question. Uh, what, are, what are Turkey's intentions? What are Turkey's ambitions? What we're seeing at the moment is that Turkey is trying to be a sole dominant of the Middle Eastern uh, politics. And it clashes with France in, in, in that and it tries to manipulate its relations uh, with Russia in order to further that as well. For those who are not familiar, France is the patron now of quite a few countries around Turkey. Romania, for example, Egypt, Cyprus, 
uh, all of these countries, uh, the, the officer training, the uh, land, sea and air forces seem to be increasingly looking a bit like the Frankish Crusades period to France for a lead against the Saracen. That's, that's true. However, uh, Macron doesn't seem to be uh, any resemblance of Charlemagne. But anyway, uh, the Turks have advanced their relationships uh, across across the, the whole region. And Azerbaijan is, of course, their key ally in the east. They're building their military relationship uh, in a way that it concerns Iran very much because Israel is involved on the Azerbaijani side and um, Iran is always very suspicious of everything that Israel is doing, for a good reason, that is. But uh, that's that's just uh, the normality, uh, the new normal of our eastern uh, part of Turkey. Uh, Now, uh, in the south, uh, you know, we have the Syrian involvement and Iraqi involvement, and that's uh, very problematic for Turkey. Uh, the Russians are a counterbalance uh, in uh, Syria, and the Americans are, are Americans, and the Iranians are, are a counterbalance in uh, Iraq. And the French are a counterbalance, of course, in Libya, which was an Ottoman territory. That's that's right. That's right. Uh, the in Libya, Cyprus, Greece. There, the French uh, show as much uh, support. Uh, to Turkey's uh, rivals uh, as, as, as is possible, as well as Egypt. But Turkey is looking northwards in Ukraine. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, their military cooperation. They have a very interesting technological cooperation. Some of the engines for those Bayraktar drones that are now very famous are produced in Ukraine. Quite interesting that. And uh, some of the old production of farms, technologies, the main plants that they had in, 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 in Soviet Union and Ukraine, they have been uh, up, uh, updated, modernized in order to suit modern military needs, and they're being used by Turkey. Of course, Ukraine is something like the Pennsylvania of the former Soviet Union. Uh, the heavy plant and the know-how is there to this day. Uh, there's a lot that still remains in Ukraine uh, from uh, from the Soviet times, but they have been developing slowly their military capacities and so forth. They have some good uh, good developments in, in Ukraine, uh, mostly private, but still there's, there's uh, some interesting stuff going on there. And then Turkey is able to enhance that by pouring in money, by pouring in uh, specialists, by getting Ukrainians to come to Turkey and work with the Turks in Turkey in order to boost Turkish production or military production. So there is there is huge potential. Now, I've been uh, reading accounts of Turkish Bayraktars flying uh, across uh, Donbass area, the Russian-controlled area in Ukraine, and even coming near Crimea, to which the Russian government made a very uh, strong statement. Uh, it, uh, it was said that if, if, if one drone falls on the Crimean soil, uh, Constantinople will be a Russian city, and then Kiev too. It's remarkable how, how often 1914-like we, we zoom in on these iconic places like Constantinople or Istanbul uh, as really being the driver of policymakers' thinking. 
to this day. And these are not just idle threats to Westerners. They sound like uh, colourful Oriental turns of phrase, don't they? But the, these threats have been made good by Russian and other armies in the past in that region. People now tend to underestimate the Russian potential. Now, even you, in asking your previous question, you said, well, Russia with Greece could do something. Well, from uh, from what I'm able to see, uh, I, I can say that Russia doesn't need a Greece or anyone like Greece to uh, turn the whole of Turkey into what the Russians often call radioactive ashes. Is this chiefly because of the total integration of operations, which has been a Soviet speciality since the closing years of the Second World War, the operational level in which a commander has disposal of uh, very sophisticated electronic warfare capabilities, as well as the ground assets. The Russians have uh, their long-term policy in uh, relation to the whole of the region, and uh, their troubles of uh, 1990s and so forth, they have been, uh, to some extent, redeemed by Putin. Putin was able to place capable people in, in different spheres of the Russian life. And the Russians now have decided to concentrate on uh, effective weaponry, uh, like like the hypersound uh, rockets that they have produced recently. Something effective, something that uh, can bring immediate effect and sort the question out to uh, Russia's favor as quickly as possible. Because Russia understands that their uh, their population is, uh, at least it's not growing very speedily. It's growing mainly uh, thanks to the migrant population that's coming in from mainly Central Asia. The Russians are not able to expand within, uh, within uh, their own country uh, to uh, have, like, diversified good production on many different levels, their economy is not very strong and so forth. But uh, they, they understand that they need at least one or two things at which they're uh, very, very good to make sure they exist. Because the existence of Russia is uh, not, you know, it's not enshrined in any holy book or it's not uh, kind of set in stone. And nobody guarantees that the Russians will have a statehood of their own. Yeah, it's a massive country, of course. But if you look at the thousand years of their history, it's always been a question of will the Orientals or will the German part of Europe, uh, one or the other, completely succeed in uh, chopping up that territory and digesting it. And uh, many times in history, uh, both of those blocks have managed. So there's, there's absolutely no foregone conclusion that Russia will continue to exist unless it has utter superiority, the kind that uh, some U.S. Navy senior officers seem to be describing now as eye-watering capabilities that can knock out, well, we have to be careful in, in repeating claims without knowledge, but it seems to be asserted that they can knock out entire carrier groups, much as these are being vaunted by Britain, France and the U.S. at the moment as, uh, as a new generation of capability. Uh, or some of the land commanders in the West are saying that their troops wouldn't last five minutes against the Russians. That is simply a claim, not one I'm endorsing, but I note that it is being said behind the scenes. So the question, Gevorg, is with all of the complexity you've just outlined, with a French-led EU defence union with very strong allies in the traditionally Christian and Jewish territories around uh, the Near East, 
the French in the driving seat there, perhaps an increasingly an EU defence union, the Germans locked into it, Britain in many ways locked in. Who will that EU defence force go to war with in the region? You've outlined, we have outlined reasons for them to go to war with Russia and reasons for them to go to war with Turkey and its allies. Uh, what is the great block formation of the Third World War going to be, God forbid, around the Black Sea area? I don't personally see how EU interests and the Russian interests will clash. I don't see that. I, I see that the Russian interests and the European interests are pretty much the same at the moment. And uh, that has been proved in Libya, for instance, where the Russians and the French uh, cooperated magnificently to both countries' benefit. The situation in Greece uh, is uh, another example of how Russia doesn't interfere with, with the European interest. Of course, Germany and France, they, uh, they want to rely on the Russian uh, resources in one way or another, Germany more than France, but still, they, uh, they would like to maintain good relations with Russia. They want their oil, they want their gas, they want you know, their good attitude. And the Russians understand that. Now, uh, these are two blocks, of course, the Russian bloc and the European bloc. But I wouldn't necessarily say that they, uh, that they have very uh, contradictory interests and uh, Britain is another matter. I was wanting to get on to Britain to, to round off this episode because uh, there's two things we haven't talked about. One is why Britain is on the sidelines. And in fact, since the end of the hot war in 1994 in Nagorno-Karabakh, Britain alone among the semi-major powers at play did not join the OSCE's forum to resolve the conflict, the Minsk group. And since 1994, Britain has been playing an increasingly pro-Turkish position to France's anti-Turkish position with regard to EU accession, with regard to Turkey's uh, place in NATO, Britain has been more along the American line or even more negative. The, the US has reasons to keep Turkey on side, such as the Injulik air base and other strategic interests. But Britain has been playing a slightly questionable game here, uh, has not really formulated a policy on the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict or series of conflicts in the same way that France has formulated a clearly pro-Armenian position. Uh, what is going on there? I wouldn't agree here, Alex. I think Britain has formulated its interest very clearly. For instance, during uh, the war between Artsakh and uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Britain hasn't made a single statement, a single statement describing and condemning uh, the attack on the Armenian civilian population even though Azerbaijan has been shelling the Armenian towns of Artsakh every day and we had uh, casualties in Artsakh uh, that weren't military casualties. There were civilian uh, and uh, these people suffered without, uh, you know, even participating in the war. Uh, Britain hasn't made uh, any statements about that. However, after one attack that the Armenian side, the Artsakh side, has uh, perpetrated against the Azeris, uh, Britain has immediately expressed their condolences and immediately uh, condemned the Armenian vile and vicious attack and, and all of that. Now, what's behind that is another thing. Well, I want to get into just that because... I can attest to the complete lack of interest at, at ministerial level or high level in the foreign office 
over the decade of the 2000s, total lack of interest in the South Caucasus. Uh, when the French were so eager to stop the uh, Georgian South Ossetian War in 2008, and and uh, Bernard Kushner brokered that ceasefire with uh, in involvement of Putin, of course, uh, Britain was was a no show to that conflict resolution. And even more so when we get to Nagorno Karabakh, policymakers at desk level, whether it's foreign policy, defence, or development, are not particularly interested in Britain. Yet there is clearly some British clique steering a pro-Turkish angle here. Who is it? Uh, look, uh, the day that the war ended between Armenia, Armenia and Azerbaijan, Artsakh and Azerbaijan, the day that that war ended, uh, a representative of the British government was in Azerbaijan traveling to the territories that fell under the Azeri control and discussing uh, gold mining deals with the Azeris. That happened immediately, immediately after uh, the war has been stopped. Now, of course, uh, BP is the uh, major uh, stakeholder of the uh, oil transportation system that uh, goes through Azerbaijan, Georgia into Turkey. So without BP, Azerbaijan would not have its much vaunted defense budget that's bigger than the whole Armenian state budget because that requires BTX, BP expertise. Uh, without BP, there wouldn't have been Azerbaijan today, I, I'm pretty sure, because uh, the British uh, have effectively formed uh, the way the state operates and exists. Uh, before, before British Petroleum, Azerbaijan was uh, just a nomadic territory with uh, many internal conflicts with uh, one regional leader fighting another and so forth. Uh, the British uh, merchants, as it were, were able to establish the situation. Well, you have one clique in the government, and the Azeri government, and that government is able to enforce uh, whatever they call the law. I mean, they're uh, below uh, any normal standards in terms of human rights and whatever. But this is getting. This is reminiscent of uh, post Second World War policy. With uh, I know it's largely blamed on the CIA more than MI6, but the cult, the coup against Mossadegh in Iran in the fifties, uh, the decision to unseat uh, Assad Jr. in the two thousands, uh, late two thousands, around two thousand and ten. Both of these seem to have been uh, crown oil interests being slighted that led to both of those decisions. Well. Uh here we have we have that expressed very clearly as well. Uh, what adds to the complexity of the situation is that there were uh, more oil fields discovered recently on the Caspian Shelf uh, of the Azeri-controlled area, but also there is uh, gas and oil from Turkmenistan that needs potentially to be transported through Azerbaijan and Armenia into Turkey, which uh, now may as well happen, because previously, because of the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, that, that wasn't possibly implemented. Of course, the British realized that they need to diversify their uh, routes of transport, transporting uh, gas and oil reserves from Central Asia. Everything so far has been going through Georgia, and Georgia has two major conflicts with Russia, 
and that's difficult. And that's an inefficient pipeline, of course, because the Baku-Tbilisi-Jehan pipeline to get to the Turkish Mediterranean coast to meet the tankers has to dogleg north and then west and then south again to avoid Armenia because of this war. That's right. It was expensive. It was far more expensive to uh, build that pipeline than it would have been if it had gone through Armenia itself. But uh, that has been already uh, produced. Uh, now there is uh, there is another project that is potentially coming up, and there's a talk of that almost everywhere, uh, that you know, uh, gas from Turkmenistan, oil from Central Asia needs to be and then Azeri oil needs to be transported through, uh, through Armenia into Turkey. That will be a lot more efficient financially and also more stable economically uh, because, uh, as you correctly mentioned, the pipeline will be shorter and uh, also the trading route along that pipeline is going to be much easier to communicate. Uh, there's there's lots involved on the way. There is this Nakhichevan uh, exclave that Azerbaijan holds between Armenia and Turkey. And that has, although it's a very narrow road, it has a direct road into Turkey, a very short border with actual Turkey, that exclave of Azerbaijan, Nakhichevan, which would mean uh, if a settlement were forced, possibly with some Russian toleration, not, not exactly connivance, but toleration, you would have uh, surface level and subsoil links running all the way from the Chinese border into Europe without the annoyance of this Armenian situation. That's correct. That's correct. But also the interesting part of it is not just the oil and uh, gold and whatever else uh, in commodities that they want to trade in, but also the fact that the whole of this area that we're talking about is right on Iran's border. So it's Iran's northern border that is concerned here. And uh, especially the fact that uh, Israel has its involvement there and the British definitely have their interest there as well. Uh, that could potentially lead to uh, another strain in, uh, in the world's, well, the world's, the Western world's relationship with Iran. Well, I, I know that 15 years ago, when Israel was closer to getting the United States to attack Iran on its behalf, the usual claims about the Natanz enrichment facility and so on, uh, I know from being inside the foreign policy establishment at that time that the uh, Azerbaijani ambassador in Washington, D.C., went to see not the State Department people, his counterparts, but went to see Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of State for Defense, uh, in Washington at that time to lobby him. And Rumsfeld took a liking to him, perhaps because he was wanting uh, to use Azerbaijan as a, as a lily, lily pad, as it would have been called, for invading uh, uh, Iran. And at that time, he wished to butter up the Azeri ambassador and said, what can we do for you? So the Azeri ambassador grabbed his moment and said, help us to recover Nagorno-Karabakh, to which Rumsfeld is reliably said to have replied, what is Nagorno-Karabakh? And uh, then he got the Azeri briefing on it. And apparently someone in the Department of Defense then spent the weekend genning up a plan for U.S. troops to recover, re recover Nagorno-Karabakh for Azerbaijan before the State Department got wind of it on the Monday and rescinded it. So this isn't fantasy. This this has happened before, this kind of lobbying. Yes, we, we, we know more or less how these things happen. But uh, what's interesting here is that now that we've, talk, we've been talking about different alliances, and uh, power centers in, in, in the region and beyond. Uh, we, we have already mentioned at least three. So uh, we have this Russian bloc here, and we have uh, the European bloc, 
and now this is a, another British-led uh, corporation group, whatever you call it. But, but what are they, Givord? Because we don't have armed forces worth mentioning anymore, sorry to say, but UK Column has been in the lead reporting on that. We don't have a foreign policy establishment that concerns itself with local problems. There are a few very good desk officers and behind them experts at the FCO, uh, but not a great bulk of them. So what identity does this British blob have? Where does it reside that is acting as a, as a block in the, in the region? Well, it, uh, as far as we're concerned in, in, in this region, we call them the crown. <laughs> and uh, what, what, what is their identity uh, is not as important to us as it would be to uh, the British society and the people of Britain because uh, it is up to the people of Britain to think for themselves and to look at the people who are governing them if they're truly their government and if they're truly uh, representatives of uh, what they uh, believe is their will, uh, their national interest. However, uh, as far as we're concerned in, in the Middle East, in Russia, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, well, parts of Eastern Europe at least, we can certainly see that these cartels that are running the situation, the economic situation here, they are uh, definitely uh, connected to uh, your royal family in Britain. And uh, even some of the Armenian people in power that uh, have been decision makers in this situation, such as the president for, of Armenia. The president of Armenia is a British subject. He's been living in Britain for half of his life. And he has been granted British citizenship, and he's never renounced it. There's no single document saying that he's ever renounced his British citizenship. He is also a citizen of Armenia, and thereby he's a president of Armenia. has been put there in place by the previous Armenian governments. And there was this notorious episode in about 2007, I think, when the British ambassador or deputy head of mission was recorded by a microphone in a vase of flowers talking to an opposition party leader, and it was spun, at least by the Armenian state and security service, as Britain fomenting a coup. So clearly Britain does have interests there that certainly weren't obvious to me as one of the intelligence specialists for the region, but they're, they're, they're undeniably there. It's uh, not publicised, and uh, logically so, understandably so, but it is also very uh, obvious that uh, the British interests, especially after Brexit, are not the same as the European interests. And it's also obvious that the British are uh, far more uh, warm, like far warmer in their relationships with the neocon types and the states than they would be with the current Biden administration, for instance. Which is not how everyone sees it, because they look at Britain's soft power, the BBC propaganda, which, uh, as, as UK column has been almost alone in pointing out, extends to Kazakhstan through uh, BBC media action and other such uh, disguised BBC fronts. There, there have been uh, soft power projections by Britain throughout the former Soviet Union and the Near East, but they're often assumed to be in line with Sorosism or the US Democratic Party. But you're arguing that it's much more the, the hawks uh, who are the, the natural allies of this crown clique stateside. Uh, we should uh, be ju uh, judging by the fruits, I think. And uh, uh, this uh, internal battle in, 
in the US that is definitely going on right now hasn't been completely understood and digested yet by by the world. The world doesn't understand what what's exactly going on there in the United States. But one thing is uh, quite obvious. Uh, for as long as Trump was in power and uh, Johnson's cabinet and generally conservative cabinet was running the United Kingdom, the interests of uh, both cabinets were pretty much the same. They, they did not clash. They did not uh, have any problematic points to the extent that they wouldn't be able to solve them. However, Biden's people have uh, voiced many things that would undermine, for instance, uh, the oil trade in the world. They, they uh, have made repeated statements about uh, trying to take the world away from uh, oil consumption. Trump has always been trying to produce more oil even in the States uh, and, and, and natural gas as well. Biden seems to be wanting to uh, get away from that. And since uh, Britain excels in uh, trying to ex extract uh, British oil under foreign sands, from under foreign sands and foreign uh, uh, shelves, uh, there might be a problem there down the line. There might be some, uh, well, there might be a point when the American government will be saying, okay, enough of you British doing this, uh, doing this uh, oil business, going to something else, because we're going to decrease the price of oil uh, to, to such an extent that it will not, no longer be uh, valuable for you to engage in that. Which, of course, gives, gives some hope to the likes of the people in Nagorno-Karabakh that having oil in or near their territory is no longer the, the curse of black gold that it might have been. And you've also gone some way to answer a query in my head as to why Russian analysts like the historian Andrei Fursov talk about the Rockefeller empire as being a British empire within America and distinct from the other globalist cliques, such as the CFR, that predominate in America. The Russian view is always the Rockefellerian attitude is throwing inflated money around and using oil rather than producing. And so that perhaps gives a sharper analysis of the, 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 the war of oligarchy within the United States than, than we have in Britain and America. Well, uh, to be a little, a little more precise, the Russian view is that uh, wherever there is oil trade going on, the production is there with it. Uh, whereas the opposition side, the other party, they are, they are involved in doing the financial stuff. Because uh, the, uh, if, if we look at the uh, American uh, financial systems uh, under Obama, what has been going on is that they've been printing as much money as they liked without any hindrance. Whenever America needed uh, new loans or needed money for anything, they just printed the money and they didn't, you know, they didn't think twice about that. With Trump, it was difficult. Trump was trying to facilitate a production. Trump was uh, trying to bring a more real life economy in place in that. Uh, respect. So uh, the Rockefellerian attitude would be, okay, whatever is real, whatever is physical and tangible, 
that's where we try to put her hand on. We're trying to, we'll try to uh, dominate that, those areas of life. Whereas the other side, what the Russians would call the more Rothschildian or Rothschildian, that would be that would be the finances and you know domination of territories and even the world perhaps through uh, having the whole world uh, dependent on them financially. But uh, well, I, I don't personally see these uh, matters in in precisely those terms. Uh, what, what I can uh, say here is this: uh, we we definitely have some uh, oil interests. Uh, they have been resolved uh, by this war. Uh, the Armenian side, even though uh, the Armenians are going to be complaining about the war and uh, uh, they're going to be saying things uh, about the uh, persecution, about uh, the mistreatment of the Armenians by the Azeris, and all of these things are true. I mean, there's, there's lots of horrible, horrible things going on. But... Uh, at, at the bottom of, 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 of their national interest, as it were, in Armenia would be this. Now that this issue of Artsakh is dominated by Russia completely, there are Russian troops there, the Russians will very likely distribute their Russian passports. Azerbaijan is never going to be able to attack the Russians in that area. That's uh, unquestionable and unthinkable for them to do that. The Armenians that will be living in Artsakh, they will be protected. They'll be able to travel to Armenia freely, back and forth. Uh, the Armenians haven't really lost much. I mean, they gave up uh, the, the seven districts, the seven uh, regions that were uh, part of Azerbaijan legally anyway. Now, of course, the city of Shushi and the uh, south, southern town of Hadrut that uh, was part of Artsakh proper, that was taken by the Azeris as well. But who said that the Russians are not going to claim it back and that Aliyah won't have to just leave from those territories and, and submit them back to Russia if that's going to be the settlement? Because the political side of the issue hasn't been resolved. What, what's changed is, is, is the physical uh, grip over land. However, you have to you have still to go to the Minsk group, the OSC Minsk group. You need to talk to them if you're the Azeri president, and you have to negotiate with the Armenians. You have to negotiate with the French, with the US, with the Russians, and that's the format where the political resolution to this situation will be brought. But there's there's still a lot of uh, things that uh, are expected to come. However. Right now, this oil trade and so forth, that's no longer a curse to the Armenians because why wouldn't, why wouldn't the Armenians want to benefit from, from the trade? Of course they would. Of course, uh, from my perspective, the whole thing is utterly immoral. Uh, first uh, and foremost here is that if, if, if this is, if, if this is your, your people, your nation, you've got to protect them. And if it involves protecting them, with all your military power, then we'll, you have to go and do that because you have to put uh, true values, real values before uh, some cliques, financial values. And I, I'm arguing this with the Armenians all the time, uh, even though it's very difficult to get across. 
But my point always is, look, if you want to build a long-term lasting government, a, a country that will operate and the country that will be viable in any region, you have to build it on the cornerstones of moral. Uh, you, you shouldn't be uh, trading uh, neither your freedom, neither your values uh, for, for, for economic benefit. Now, everybody wants a good economy, but it is utterly important to say we value every citizen that we have, we value the people that we have, and we have to put their interests first. It's not about the land. It shouldn't be about the land. It shouldn't be about the oil. It shouldn't be about the international law even, because everything should be subject uh, to uh, to uh, the core values that you have as society. However, I, I have been uh, able to see this, that uh, this uh, approach has been completely abandoned by the government in Armenia. Uh, and then so, uh, so it has been in, in, the, in Azerbaijan and many other places as well. There are very few countries that would actually consider their citizens' interests before they would consider, uh, you know, a pile of dosh. On that rather sobering note, Gevorg, many thanks for our longest podcast so far, packed with useful ruminations. And I do hope that before long, I'll be able to interview you again, perhaps looking this time more to Belarus and Poland, an area of the region that we haven't spoken about much, where you have uh, a lot of sensible things to say. But for now, thank you very much. And let's hope you're right that Armenia is now beyond the curse of oil wealth.